This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 33 of World to Win. This is the second part of our two-parter episodes for International Women's Day. So before we start, please just don't forget to subscribe to our channel, click the bell button to be notified when we go live, and also like and share this video. Um, and obviously comment on this video as well. We want to hear from you as much as possible and it also really, really helps us to reach as many more people as possible. So on part one of this episode, uh, that you can find very easily on our channel, we've discussed the history of International Women's Day and its connections to the workers' movement and why it's so important for socialists to be involved in the fight for uh, women and, uh, for women's rights and how our movement has been involved in them since the beginning of that movement. Um, and we, we think history is incredibly important. It teaches us so much, but this time we're going to talk about today and the way that women's mo- the women's movement is going, what it needs to achieve, and also how to do it. So really uh, important episode ahead of us. Our lineup today, really incredible. We are going to talk about the situation for women under COVID. We also have a really, really inspiring interview uh, with socialist feminist activists from Mexico who will talk about the movement against femicide and gender violence there. So really interesting, really looking forward to hear about that. And also we're going to talk about the new wave of struggle that's engulfing the entire world right now with uh, uh, the kind of new wave of Me Too. But before we start, I want to ask you a little question. Where are you based? Have you been involved in any feminist struggles this year? Have you ever been involved in any feminist struggles in the past few years? What was the most memorable protest that you've been to in the last couple of years to do with the women's struggle? Can't wait to hear. It's so I always love looking through these comments and seeing what people from all around the world have been doing in their own respective countries. So please comment. So while you go and do that, I want to say hi to my co-host. So Toya, how are you doing? How's it going, Yara? It's good to see you again. So last week, we talked about the historical significance of International Women's Day. We had speakers on talking about, um, you know, struggles in the early 1900s and how we came to celebrate this very important day. But today, we're going to talk a little bit more about the current struggle and how especially women workers under, you know, this COVID pandemic are being affected. Um, Women workers oftentimes are our essential workers, which is a term that we've come to learn truly what essential workers are. They're not the CEOs. They're not the bankers. They're the nurses. They're the healthcare aides. They're the teachers. um, They're the mothers. And so today we have Marty with us. She is a member of Socialist Alternative in the U.S., um, and she's president of her nurses union um, in Philly. So welcome, Marty. Hey there, Toya. I'm actually vice president, but other than oh, that, excuse me. got excuse it just me. right. Okay, perfect. Um, so yeah, I wanted to start today talking, uh, Marty, because actually almost a year ago, I remember being on a panel with you um, at the beginning of COVID and you were speaking about what it was like as a nurse and you know the effects of the disease and your experiences. So um, maybe if you could, you know, think about the past year, where are we at today um, in the situation for essential workers in the crisis? 
I think the short answer is exhausted. We are physically, emotionally, psychologically exhausted from the increased stress at work and that increased stress at home as parents and partners like everybody else um, is struggling with. Um, at the outset of the pandemic, a lot of people were calling us heroes. And I think what they actually meant was martyrs, right? We were being forced to work in unsafe conditions without the adequate protection, even when our employers knew exactly what we needed to keep ourselves safe. They knew what the risks were. Um, and this has led to a shift in somehow essential workers are thinking about their jobs um, and about their employers. The idea that we're all on the same side uh, that we're working towards a common goal or that they have that ultimately, you know, our managers have our backs. This has suffered, that idea has suffered a really serious, maybe even a mortal blow. Uh, so one year in, we are still struggling with some of the same issues with staffing, equipment, supplies, appropriate personal protective equipment, uh, that we need to do our jobs well and to provide the high quality service that we're trained to provide and that we took these jobs to provide. I think that's what people forget sometimes is that we took these jobs because we wanted to do this work. Our jobs are always hard, but they can also be extremely rewarding. And the pandemic has robbed us of so many of the rewards. Healthcare workers are seeing patient after patient leave in body bags rather than walking out, you know, with their families back to being themselves again, you know. Educators are watching children fall behind or worrying about the ones that aren't showing up. Um, even retail and hospitality workers who've ex experienced like massive job loss and income loss and high, super high turnover rates. Uh, anyone dependent on tips is really struggling. They have to go to work, but there aren't enough patients or sorry, customers when they get there to like bring home a living wage and they're worrying about each other. Where are their friends that they haven't seen? So a year on, um, I think a lot of essential workers are reevaluating. They're kind of in the process of thinking about their work in new ways, about who really needs who. Uh, like you were saying, do the employers need us more than we need them? Or is it the other way around? About the need for us to have more control in our workplaces beyond just wages and benefits, right? But control over work rules, over job assignments, over staffing levels, even over supply chains and the layout of the workforce, the workplace to actually keep us safe. So I think there are openings here for us as socialists to engage with our co-workers in really important discussions about the nature of work within this profit-driven capitalist system and very concretely how it can be different with a strong union that has strong leadership and ultimately how it could be different in a different system under socialism. I definitely want to dive into what you just ended with there about how workers can fight back. I mean, especially in regards to uh, women workers, essential workers, you mentioned um, healthcare and education. And you, as you said, these are two industries that people 
go into this work because they want to, because they're passionate, because they care. And the bosses use that passion and use the fact that they are caring for other humans against them as a way to stop them from organizing. So I'm wondering if you can go a little bit more in depth about how can healthcare workers and education workers alike use their very unique position um, to fight beyond wages and fight beyond working conditions, which of course are extremely important, especially in a pandemic, um, to win victories um, for the whole society. Yeah, so we're sort of in a unique position in some ways. It's a very strong position in terms of connections with our patients and our students and families. In other ways, we're in a much weaker position than other um, workers in the capitalist economy because you know we're not generally bringing in tons of profits for the capitalists uh, so there's some similarities and some differences with other workers and the struggles uh, their own struggles in their workplaces um, even pre-pandemic and obviously taking on added urgency during the pandemic healthcare and education workers around the world had been demonstrating what looked like a new way to fight and win, but really was a return to a traditional methods and ideas that built the labor movement as part of the working class movement like 150 years ago, right? And that by linking up with other working class people outside of our immediate workplaces and engaging them in a united fight around demands that benefited everyone, um, and in this, in our case, of course, for high quality, fully funded services like education and healthcare. And of course, that fight looked a little different from country to country, um, depending on how the services were traditionally supplied and funded, whether it was a public system or a private system or a mix of the two. But they shared a lot of common features and built around slogans like safe staffing saves lives in education or our working conditions, our, our students' learning conditions in healthcare, they really highlighted how straight the line of solidarity is from healthcare workers to their patients or from educators to their students and families. But this also means, as you mentioned, that that's a really powerful weapon um, ag against us um, because our most powerful, like, um, weapon or tool in the fight against the bosses, the strike has an immediate and powerfully negative impact on our patients and our students. So people are always um, uh, not necessarily afraid to pull that trigger, but they're going to think very seriously about it. It's not going to just, you know, strike on a whim or over a few cents in, on their wages, right? This has to be a real fight for the service that we provide and for the quality of that service. So it's super important that we communicate that our uh, work stoppage is necessary to prevent much greater harm um, later that we won't be able to stop and that we've already tried every uh, other method available to us. And it comes down to this. This is where we draw our line and this is where we fight. This is a fight for our patients or for our students, not against them, right? And uh, we need to bring working class people into those fights 
And to be able to do that, we need to you know, like organize them a little bit differently. So we have, uh, you know, the, the recent successful strikes by both educators and healthcare workers have combined kind of big energetic picket lines at the work sites with rallies in downtown central locations at lunchtime or in the evening so that working class people can come either, you know, on their break or after work in large numbers and demonstrate to, you know, the funders, the governments, though, whether it's your city council or your state government, that there's real support behind this struggle, that this is something that all working class people are willing to come out for and fight for. Um, and in the midst of the pandemic lockdowns, the fight back by healthcare workers in Belgium, you might have seen that video, you know, where they, they turned their backs on the prime minister. That was part of a fight that effectively helped restore millions of euros back uh, that had been cut in their public health system. And we don't want this to be like our little secret for how we win strikes or how we win full funding for healthcare or for education, right? We want these methods to be taken up by workers in sectors that are much more strategic in the capitalist economy and apply them in their struggles, not only because they'd win, which they would, of course, uh, but because it would advance the larger struggle that we're in to reset the focus of the organized labor movement from the wages and conditions of, you know, just that small slice of the workforce that they're looking at, their membership, to their traditional, you know, the way they saw their jobs as fighting for the working class as a whole um, in a time when like the socialist movement and the labor movement were one movement, not two separate movements that weren't talking to each other. We're trying to bring this politics of class struggle, of fighting for the whole working class back into um, these struggles. And education and healthcare struggles have that little opening where we can show how this is really effective and really the right thing to do. And hopefully other unions will take it up yeah, I really like how you ended there talking about how we can, you know, bring in the whole working class. I mean, when I think of educators and nurses and struggle, it's those two slogans that you mentioned, you know, when uh, fully funded education, um, uh, you know, is a working, con it's a better working condition for the teachers, but it also affects the students and safe staffing. It's a better working condition for the nurses, but it also affects the patients. And so it's these demands that, I mean, I know you said that in the beginning of the pandemic, nurses were called heroes and, you know, you you talked about that. But I mean, it's it's true. The 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 nurses and the educators are um, fighting for the people that they are helping for the students, for the um, for the patients. And it's it's really inspiring. Um, and it shows that struggle, you know, uh, uh uh, can be united across the working class because when when you know my conditions are better, your conditions are better, and I think that's really important. Um, linking those two those two aspects, um, and I mean when you know a few years ago in the U.S. when the West Virginia teachers went on strike, you know one of the main one of the main demands that they were fighting for was fully funded education, of course, along with health care and um, you know uh, um, higher wages. 
Um, but that in 2018, when those teachers went on strike, it really kicked off the labor movement. And you yourself, Marty, I know you are, um, you're, um, uh, you've been on the picket line. I know in, uh, you've gone on strike before. Um, but is this what we're going to have to keep doing? Are we just going to have to keep um, uh, fighting these uh, defensive battles, going on strike, trying to, to win a little more? How can we get out of this kind of revolving door of cuts and attacks? Well, I guess at the risk of sounding a little bit snarky, uh, capitalism by definition, Toya, is a system that produces goods and services that can be sold at a profit, right? And the reverse is also true, that only those goods and services which can be sold at a profit are produced. And education and healthcare for the working class, even though we're the vast majority in society, doesn't really create sufficient profits uh, to get those services on the capitalist to-do list, right? Unless or until we make it so. And it was only those powerful movements of the mass working class uh, from earlier generations that ever forced governments to divert even that little portion of the profits, of the capitalist profits that they did, to uh, funding public goods like education and healthcare, childcare, even workplace safety, environmental regulation. Um, even though we all breathe the same air, I guess they think they'll have special air. I don't know, really. Um, but in these moments, sorry, in these moments, when the working class has, the movements have ebbed, or especially during uh, times of crisis like the current situation we're in, the capitalists have moved aggressively on to the offensive, like you said, to take back what they consider is theirs, and they've lowered taxes for the wealthy and the corporations, which then means that governments have to cut budgets on, on uh, public programs, even when they're absolutely essential, like healthcare and education. But budget cuts are just like beginner level take backs, you know, and we've experienced over the last 50 years, how public programs have been divided between those that can be sold for a profit in the market. And they those ones have been privatized. And the public services which can't be sold for a profit on in the marketplace. And those largely those services have been returned to families, most often to be provided for free by already overburdened women who are essential workers in, um, in their paid part of their day. And then they come home and they have this uh, second shift that they do, uh, taking care of family members, either elderly or young family members. But so as Marxists, we're actively engaged in every defensive struggle, right, that comes before us to prevent further erosion of those services, to restore budget cuts, to stop school closures, and every offensive struggle to win new gains like new organizing drives. I'm so excited about Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama. I can't wait to see what happens there. Um, uh, and, you know, every other non-union workplace, those are our offensive gains when we make inroads into new areas. Um, but here in the U.S., you know, it would be things like winning the, the things from Bernie's program, Medicare for All, 
which would be public payment for private health care, but still would be a huge step forward. But like you said, you said uh, a revolving door. I always call it the game of cat and mouse, where the labor movement, you know, takes one step forward and two steps back until we can make a fundamental break with the system of capitalism and working people, the vast majority in society are making democratic decisions. We're setting the priorities about how society's vast resources are deployed. And so those super profitable comp uh, com corporations are taken into public control and ownership. And then we use those resources to provide education, healthcare, clean air, all the things that working class people need uh, to live a good, excuse me, a good life. Well, you give us hope, Marty. Thank you. I love ending uh, our segments on a positive note because there's just so much turmoil, especially when we're talking about something, um, you know, so devastating as the pandemic. So I want to thank you for coming on our show. Um, and hopefully we'll have you on again real soon. Thanks. It was nice talking to you, Toya. Take it easy. And now we have a special segment from one of our members in Mexico to talk about the women's struggles there. Actualmente en México vivimos una crisis económica, política, social y de salud sumamente grave, parte de ello provocado por la pandemia de COVID-19, misma que ha exacerbado problemáticas surgidas hace ya décadas. Bajo este panorama, las mujeres somos el sector más afectado en términos de violencia estructural, tanto en el ámbito doméstico como público y económico. Acorde con el Alto Comisionado de las Naciones Unidas para los Derechos Humanos en México, ocurren entre 7 a 10.5 feminicidios al día y al menos 51.4% de los casos quedan en completa impunidad, lo que significa que poco menos de un feminicidio en México es castigado. La mayoría de las veces la violencia ejercida contra las mujeres proviene de personas cercanas. 44% de las mexicanas reportaron haber sufrido violencia por parte de su esposo o pareja. En ese sentido, bajo el contexto de la pandemia, la necesidad de quedarse en casa ha figurado como caldo de cultivo para el incremento de la violencia doméstica e intrafamiliar contra mujeres y niñas. Esto ha sufrido un aumento del 60% en todo el país. Asimismo, la violencia no solo se queda en el abuso físico y mental del ámbito doméstico, también abarca términos laborales y económicos. En nuestro país, así como en muchos otros, las mujeres han asumido el papel histórico impuesto de llevar a cabo todo el trabajo de cuidados, lo cual, al ser combinado con el trabajo asalariado, se traduce en una mayor carga que ha incrementado a raíz de la pandemia, ya que, al haberse imposibilitado el acceso de las y los niños a guarderías y escuelas, se produjo un aumento de responsabilidades que suelen recaer en su mayoría sobre las mujeres. Por otro lado, el hecho de que las mujeres hemos sido excluidas estructuralmente del contexto laboral asalariado se recrudece en la pandemia. Las mujeres suelen ganar menos que los hombres en términos salariales. De acuerdo con la OCDE, la brecha salarial de género en México es de 18.8%, una de las brechas más altas respecto del 13% promedio mundial. Además, suelen tener menos acceso a puestos de trabajo de alta dirección y sufrir mayor discriminación. 
Bajo dicho contexto, muchas mujeres han intentado superar su situación de precariedad laboral a partir de emprendimientos de la venta de artículos variados a través de redes sociales y redes en su comunidad. A estas mujeres se les suele calificar con nombres despectivos como nenis, desde una visión patriarcal en donde la imagen de la mujer independiente y trabajadora es completamente negativa. Todo lo anterior tiene lugar gracias a un contexto de ignorancia y despotismo de los grandes gobernantes sobre la situación de violencia y discriminación estructural que vivimos las mujeres en México, desde el presidente hasta los funcionarios con cargos públicos e incluso aspirantes a gobernaturas como Félix Salgado Macedonio, quien fue denunciado por cometer violación y maltrato físico a una de sus empleadas en repetidas ocasiones, así como los abusos de la policía y el poder judicial reproducen discursos patriarcales y conductas que atentan en contra de nuestra integridad. Por otro lado, en épocas electorales surge el oportunismo de sectores de derecha que se montan sobre la lucha de las mujeres para enarbolar banderas de partidos que nunca han apoyado nuestras causas. Pareciera que para ganar votos, los grupos más reaccionarios y conservadores se quieren poner la camiseta del feminismo. A todos ellos les respondemos, dejen de mentir, sabemos perfectamente que nuestra lucha les es totalmente ajena. La derecha conservadora y religiosa se opone por completo a nuestra demanda más importante, la despenalización del aborto y el derecho a decidir sobre nuestros cuerpos. La reproducción de una ideología intolerante y discriminatoria, así como la falta de cuestionamiento sobre los privilegios masculinos y los roles de género, incita el odio hacia las mujeres. Creemos importante recordar que nosotras, feministas socialistas, no luchamos en contra de los hombres, luchamos en contra del sistema capitalista patriarcal. Desde Rosa y Alternativa Socialista México, nos posicionamos contra la estructura del sistema patriarcal que nos oprime a todas y a todos. Por un feminismo internacionalista con perspectiva de clase. Por una alternativa socialista para el movimiento feminista contra el patriarcado y el capitalismo. This was so inspiring. It's so good to hear about the struggles in Latin America. I think, uh, I think it, it's just so fascinating to hear from the activists in Mexico. I think that the the, the movement there uh, against gender violence and also the conditions that women workers have experienced. Really, really interesting to hear about kind of like the way uh, the resistance is uh, working. And I think the struggles that were mentioned. Um, are connected to this much, much bigger international movement that's changed the way that young women see their oppression. And it's not just the consciousness, it's also the massive struggle that we've seen in the, in the past 10 years. And the new, the new wave of this new wave of the feminist movement spread around the world with massive struggles for abortion rights and for bodily autonomy in Latin America, but also in Poland. And we've also seen a new spread of the Me Too movement. And young women and LGBTQ plus people have been at the, at the forefront of the recent mass movements generally around the world, uh, including in Belarus, uh, in Russia, in Thailand. So I'm really happy to discuss this. We have got uh, Becky from the ISA in England, Wales and Scotland. Hi, Becky. Hey, Aaron. Um, and we're going to talk about the Me Too movement and how we can get organized to fight back. So, first of all, Becky, it's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, it's great to be back. 
Um, so I want to ask you, first of all, quite a general question. So can you tell us a little bit more about this new wave of the Me Too movement? And kind of like, because we keep talking about how international it is. So can you tell us a little bit more about the character of this movement and how it became so internationalist? Yeah, I think that um, in a way, Me Too never really went away. It's been something that's been constant. The uh, revelations that have come out about sexual harassment and assault and rape coming out all the time against people in the establishment. And obviously it started mainly in Hollywood, but it spawned, uh, spawned all areas. Um, so in the US, it's constant. The latest is uh, mainly in politics with a Democrat governor, Andrew Cuomo, who's been accused so far by three women. Um, there's political figures in Australia, uh, where government ministers have been accused of rape. Um, in India, where um, the first woman who started Me Too in India, she um, got accused of defamation and has just been acquitted um, in, uh, in court. And in Pakistan, there's women that are facing defamation charges for speaking out against uh, sexual assault against powerful people um, in the establishment. Um, but as you say, we're also seeing new waves of protests as well, like not just people speaking out, but people protesting as well. So in France, there's been uh, protests in the last year, um, mainly focusing um, on child abuse and incest. And that was sparked after um, a case of a 13-year-old girl where she was repeatedly gang raped by 20 uh, adult men. Um, and it's estimated that one in 10 people in France um, have been victims of child abuse. Um, but also the protests have been aimed at the government because there's um, a minister in uh, Macron's uh, cabinet that's, be that's currently under investigation for rape. Um, in Greece, there's been protests as well. There's, um, there was an accusation uh, in, in sport, in the Olympic uh, team, the sa Olympic sailing team. Um, but then that spread um, or, um, across all different um, areas and the government's now been forced to make changes to the law, which obviously don't go far enough, but it shows the effect that these protests um, are having. But also like the international character of it, you can see that it's now spreading to new areas where it didn't reach um, in previous years. Um, importantly, there's uh, the Balkans, um, where a small group of women sparked uh, the kind of equivalent of Me Too, which was, um, I didn't ask for it. Um, and that started with them calling out sexual abuse by their acting teacher um, in Serbia. Um, but then within uh, one day, uh, 4,000 women um, had spoken out online um, against, um, all over the Balkans, um, against uh, sexual abuse. And there's also been protests in Iran, in Egypt, in China, and in Turkey. And so it's kind of, it's quite shocking that in pretty much every country or region in the world, there's been protests or mass outrage against um, sexual harassment. But I think that for us, it's not really surprising because the capitalist uh, system is based on unequal power relations and control of women's bodies and objectification. And so the reason that it's so widespread and that this movement is so international is because capitalism is so, um, is so widespread. And I think that 
um, all of the things um, that happen under capitalism to make women feel ashamed of sexual abuse and victim blaming and things like that can mean that people don't come out, they don't speak out until they get given confidence by other people. Um, and then you get this kind of snowball effect where loads of people start um, taking, uh, taking a stand. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is really important. And I think we've seen this dynamic with the Me Too movement quite a lot. And around the world, it's like, like you said, it's a lot of times it's kind of like someone with a high profile, or like a celebrity uh, that brings attention to the issue and then it just spirals down and people start talking about those issues in a much more serious way. And I think it has an amazing effect at like changing the consciousness of women around the world. And I think recently there's been in the headlines all the time about Britney Spears, that was the free Britney movement that's been going on for a few months, if not a year. Um, and, and obviously recently there was the um, the Framing Britney Spears documentary that kind of follows her life and also follows the legal aspect of her dad completely controlling her life, which is absolutely disgusting. Um, and I think on, like it does a great job at showing all of those details. I think a lot of people, at least online, have seen and known about Britney Spears. But it kind of takes that and exposes the brutal sexism and also the mass sexualization that Britney Spears uh, has uh, gone through. But not just Britney Spears. It shows how kind of this, the, the media and paparazzi culture that was really prevalent at the time and is not less prevalent now, um, is just kind of taking those young women and imprinting upon them those kind of kind of um, hypocritical uh, views that society has about women and kind of objectifies them. And uh, Britney has very clearly been objectified throughout her life, including as an actual child, like a 10-year-old. And this isn't an isolated incident. It's not just Britney Spears and it's not just famous uh, teen stars. It's a sexist culture that capitalism fosters and does it through commodification of women's appearance and their bodies as well, uh, but also taking sexuality as something that the industry and the economy benefits from rather than something that should be for the individual, from an individual choice or pleasure. And I think also it kind of shows the massive amounts of prejudice that are put on women when it comes to our sexuality. Um, and I think this provides a completely dehumanized uh, view of women. And obviously that really contributes to sexism and it feeds off of sexism as well. And I think there's something that women experience on a daily basis and the Me Too movement has really pushed that to the front. And it's no wonder why it's back now because women are saying enough is enough but they've, they've said that before the pandemic but with the pandemic it's even clearer how much more women are suffering um and you know i think we've we've seen how not just covid but also the, the economic crisis that came with it uh, just intensified both the gender oppression and exploitation but also the consciousness of women when it comes to that and i think we, we've seen loads, like loads of information about how that's affected, you know, the, the high levels of unemployment uh, of women in particular, uh, struggling with childcare, of course, 
and also dealing with gender violence that's another pandemic that has to be addressed um and i think that like the the, the conditions of women have been particularly difficult even when it, we talk about a pandemic that doesn't necessarily hit women uh, in, in a health way more than it does men um and that kind of took that anger that compounded with women throughout the past few years and pushed it even further. So what was the situation been like for women during these crises? And what, what do you think it means for women and I think particularly young women's futures? Well, you mentioned um, violence against women, which has um, increased in every country um, during the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And that's been obviously where there's been lockdowns, like lengthy lockdowns, where um, particularly women are um, stuck at home with um, their abuser. Or many in many cases, um, domestic violence um, has started during the lockdown because um, that kind of isolation and all the stress and, uh, and things like that um, has contributed um, to it. But also you're seeing an increase in sexual harassment um, at work uh, because people um, with all of the uncertainty about whether people can keep their jobs and, and so on, people feel too scared to challenge um, sexual harassment. And I was reading as well, something that's quite shocking that there's been an increase in cyber sexual harassment because more people are working online, working from home. Um, and there's been like reported increases in like stalking um, and um, you know people receiving threats and so uh, so on um, online, um, and obviously um, a massive effect on people's um, mental health um, as well. And like mental health was like such a big crisis for young people anyway, uh, because of um, the way that society is and was before the pandemic. But that's got um, even worse. Um, but I think like the, the job losses um, and how they're mainly affecting women um, and it's either that those jobs are being lost like in the retail sector and hospitality sector um, and so on or people, uh, women are unable to go back to work because they have caring responsibilities um, uh, as a result of uh, coronavirus. And so for example, in the US um, in September alone, 865,000 women dropped out of the labor force completely. And that was compared to 200,000 men, which is still a big number, but uh, you can see how it disproportionately um, affects um, women. But the question about this is like, not just um, how it's affecting women now, but what that will mean in terms of a long-term setback for women. Um, and so even the UN, has said that the coronavirus pandemic could wipe out 25 years of increasing gender equality. And so we're seeing that with more unpaid work, women doing more in the home, being pushed back into the home. Um, and I think that would be a question of like, how do we fight back against that? Um, it's not just a question of for younger women, you know, facing poverty and uh, lack of like job opportunities and so on, but a pushing back of the position of women within society. And obviously we've never been free from oppression, but the gains that were made um, in the past are under threat now. And I think a lot of young women will be kind of thinking like, really, do we have to fight for all of this 
um, again, and will be like, you know, questioning kind of what capitalism has to offer for, for women. I think what you're saying is really, really important. And I think I completely agree that so many women are now pushed to find solutions. In the past 10 years, we've seen so much of that consciousness change. We've seen women not allowing for those like old creepy men to dictate what we're doing anymore. And I think now with the pandemic, with this unbearable situation on everyone, and I think also with consciousness generally about the government and about the state and how it kind of adds to that sexism and oppression that women experience. I think now women are actually looking for a solution and a solution that will solve it in the long term, not just, but like, even though there's obviously a major victory that the Me Too movement had, but not just locking up the perverts from the past, but completely preventing that from happening again and again and again. Um, now, so I think uh, what I think the main question that we need to ask ourselves now is what is actually needed? What is the solution? So, what what do you think uh, uh, the solution is for working class women, and what is the international socialist alternative putting forward as the solution? Well, basically, we need socialist feminism, um, and I think that. Like socialism is becoming clearer to people more and more, but also the need for um, us to fight on um, things that affect women specifically as well as becoming more and more um, obvious. So I think in terms of like socialism, we need a socialist healthcare system. I mean, that's clear to everybody um, because of this uh, pandemic. Um, but mainly women working in the healthcare system are being affected by privatization, not getting a pay rise um, and, you know, working in unsafe uh, conditions. But also as so service users, like the um, many countries where privatization exists in the healthcare system, women uh, suffer uh, with their health um, as well. And so what we uh, call for and what we fight for is publicly owned healthcare system that's fully funded, but also that is democratically controlled by workers and service users rather than leaving it in the hands um, of governments who um, are only you know concerned with profit and not providing um, a proper service but also I think it's revealed um, what kind of education system we need um, obviously women have been uh, the hardest hit by um, you know schools being closed and having to look after children and that raises lots of um, questions about you know, we need free childcare, but also we need free education um, and, you know, safe working conditions um, in, uh, in schools um, as well. Um, related to uh, domestic violence, like there's been some governments that have had to step in and um, increase funding a little bit during the pandemic to deal with the increase in domestic violence. But for the previous decades, these services were being cut back um, to the bone. And so we don't want just more funding into services, but dealing with, um, you know, the class questions that are raised around domestic violence about um, being able to get out of violent relationships, uh, being able to uh, afford somewhere to live, having a job that pays enough um, for you to survive uh, by yourself um, and, and so on, as well as uh, funding uh, shelters for people fleeing uh, violent relationships. But also it's dealing with 
the system that perpetuates um, these ideas, like Yara was saying before about, um, you know, why are there so many powerful uh, people that, um, you know, abuse women that uh, carry out sexual uh, sexual abuse? It's because of ideas about women under capitalism. So we don't want just more money uh, and better services, but also uh, sex and relationship education. Um, that talks about consent and uh, talks about you know proper what proper relationships uh, should be like control over the justice system uh, democratic control so we, we're not relying on bigoted judges to make decisions about whether uh, to convict rapists um, and and so on and so I think just generally um, it showed you know the the pandemic has exposed capitalism in so many ways not just in terms of like healthcare and jobs and so on but also um, in terms of the ideology of capitalism, and uh, we, you know, uh, we challenge that with the ideology um, of socialism. And we would say to women that are trying to fight for all of these things that to be able to pay for these services and to be able to change um, change the system, we also need to fight for nationalisation of like the finance industry, of um, the command and heights of the economy, the big big companies and carry out international planning um, so that working class women and workers of all genders can have control um, over their lives. Yeah, I think this is really important. I think you really highlighted as well why we keep insisting to put that socialist before feminist. Um, uh, like we always say that it's not, you know, I think it, it goes both ways, of course. And I think we talked about it a little bit in the previous episode that it's not just about, you know, how there's no feminism for real without socialism there's also no socialism without feminism because we have to kind of break from the suppression of women in order to create a, a, a society that's actually socialist and we can't have a society that breaks out from the suppression completely without kind of you know having a socialist uh, a socialist system that will replace those bad uh, ideas and the, the ideology that stands behind the capitalist system that stands to exploit us and oppress us because it benefits from it. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about, uh, about this uh, uh, like earlier in the episode with Marty about how it's not just that women uh, have been hard hit by this crisis, but they're also at the, fr at the, front, line, at the front line of it. Um, and I think like we said constantly it's about finding the solution and if we can see that the solution is socialist feminism i think a lot of people would say that you know this is a utopia um this is not something we can actually get to so what what can we actually do to break with oppression what are the steps that are needed in order to create this future that we want to that is liberation for women from LG for lgbtq plus people and so on well i think the the short answer is that we need mass struggle and i think the question about it being utopian i think you know we can look at where mass struggle has already taken place and that isn't because socialists are saying hey you should do this it's because women um, and other workers are fighting back anyway uh, because they feel the need to and so we saw in 2019 that that was a year of women's struggle um, and obviously 2020 cut across that to an extent but uh, with coronavirus but there's been a lot still happening um, we've seen a victory 
just in January this year in Argentina, where mass struggle won abortion rights um, uh, there. We're seeing mass struggle in Poland um, against attacks on abortion rights. We've been talking about the Me Too uh, movement, which, you know, isn't a mass movement in the sense that there's like um, millions of people on the streets all the time, but even just that, um, you know, mood online has already won victories because of the kind of crisis within uh, society. And I think that this year and next year, we'll see that uh, continuing and coming back to the fore on a bigger scale, because I think that anger is not going away or getting better. You know, it's the opposite. Anger is deepening. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, I kind of said earlier about the increase in unemployment amongst women. Like, what does that mean for working class women being able to fight back? And obviously we would, um, you know, need struggle to save jobs, um, you know, strike action to save jobs and to stop pay cuts uh, um, and, and those kinds of things. Um, but I think that there will be kind of this feeling of enough is enough because it isn't just the last year, it's the last 10 years that people have uh, gone through of austerity um, and uh, an increase in sexism um, and so on. And I think that there will be a refusal to just accept uh, the situation. And we saw kind of last year, just before many of the lockdowns started on International Women's Day, there were big protests, huge protests, massive strikes, for example, in Mexico. And I think that we need to continue these movements. I think this International Women's Day, it's going to be harder because of coronavirus. But I think that in general, the kind of direction is that we're reestablishing the militant traditions of International Women's Day. But as we've kind of been discussing, we can't just fight against sexism. We have to say that we don't want to return to normal um, you know, health workers and other workers are already winning concessions when they take strike action or they protest against pay cuts or for pay rises. And I think this shows that we need to make sure that the different movements link up with each other. So the Me Too uh, movement and uh, the women's strikes link up with other workers. They get organised. We've seen women, we've seen, we've seen examples of this actually, like in Thailand and in Belarus, where women have been at the forefront of those struggles and they've been fighting on their kind of specific demands, but we've seen how they've kind of merged into the other economic and social demands of the movement. And uh, this is kind of like the basis for building um, a united um, movement. And I think that coronavirus and the kind of types of struggles that people are in now is um, raising more and more the need for workers' control and socialist methods of struggle. And I think that this is something that will kind of develop anyway, but obviously as socialists will get involved in these types of struggles and make these arguments and kind of argue for socialist feminism um, and try and build, you know, we don't say to women, uh, kind of, um, you know, ignore your problems and just fight on these issues. But we make the point that we can only fight on everybody's issues if we build a united movement of the whole of the working class um, and oppressed. And that needs to be a movement for international socialism. So, you know, that's a big task, <laughs> but that's, um, you know, unfortunately what is uh, what is necessary and that's what we're kind of setting ourselves uh, to do. I think this is kind of like something that keeps on coming up, you know, how 
every time we go into a feminist protest, it's not just about it's it's about connecting the points uh, of what women and women workers need together with the workers movement as well as connecting the the points that workers need into the women's movement and i think that is really important i think like you said this is a struggle that's like the, the, this new wave of feminist struggle has been going on for about 10 years now and i think a lot of the kind of activists and feminists that have been they've been involved in the struggle for the past 10 years sometimes can get a little you know like wary i guess f- feeling like nothing's ever changing but in the last 10 years so much has changed and we can see how these mass movements actually change things and i think that that, that next step that we're talking about the, the that the mass movements can take forward can happen and I, you know only two days ago um it was the birthday of one of the most well-known uh socialist feminists rosa luxemburg and she has this really famous saying that uh, weeks before a revolution everyone says it's impossible and weeks after revolution uh everyone says they was inevitable and i think that is something that is really important to remember every time we talk about things like that because it does sometimes especially to uh, people who have been active in those struggles for a long time seem like it's never going to happen but it always does until it happens uh so thank you so much becky i think this is a lot of food for thought and i th- also think that it's it's not just food for thought it's food for action uh, i think a lot of people are like can't wait to go back on the streets and fight and struggle for these things when uh, the pandemic uh, gets to a point where it allows us to do that and in the meantime there's so much to do which we're going to talk about in a bit so thank you so much Becky and great to have you again on the show so now we're going to the best bit of every episode the shout out of the week and I think you can guess who we're shouting out this week so we want to say we want to give a big shout out to all of the rosa activists and socialist feminists around the world who are taking action this weekend and also tomorrow for international women's day and i think it's it's so amazing to see how despite the limitations that covid put upon us um and also the lockdowns all the restrictions that are going on around the world we're still seeing this important day of struggle being like put to action and it's really incredible and i specifically want to mention one place because uh ISA supporters in Russia were arrested and fined last week for distributing leaflets for a 2-hour women's strike on March the 5th and you know they've just been preparing to hand out leaflets uh, at the Moscow State University and they were calling for support for this women's strike and they even they didn't even start leafletting yet before the police turned up and arrested them and i think everyone here wants to send solidarity and please put your solidarity in the comments as well it's really important uh, to see how strong we are as an international movement um so we want to send solidarity to the to specifically ISA supporter uh, Matve who was sentenced to 25 days in prison for distributing leaflets not even going to distribute leaflets and the crime according to uh the judge was participation in an unsanctioned mass activity 
So we obviously can't let that slide. So we have set a, a, a fund up, uh, the ISA has set a fund to help any fines uh, that he might have and support the important work that our supporters in Russia are doing. So please check out the link in the description box. Really important. Anything you can donate would be really, really helpful uh, in this really horrible environment for uh, activists generally, and especially socialist and feminist activists. And I think it's really, I, I want to just finish talking about this by making this the same point that has been throughout this episode and kind of weave throughout this episode that working class women have been at the forefront of mass movements across the world and we've been fighting against gender oppression but also against this whole rotten exploitative unfair oppressive system the capitalist system so if you heard this and you're not yet a member of International Socialist Alternative, we are not just doing this. We are also on the streets fighting like uh, we've seen today and like we've see, we see all the time. So please, first of all, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and click the bell button to be notified when we go live and when we upload new videos. But also, please join us. We, ha we can do so much more uh, if more people who has dedicated at, uh, to fighting the capitalist system and fighting for socialism. Uh, if as many of you join us and fight together with us. So uh, we are uh, available all around the world on every continent in over 30 countries. So just make sure to send us your details and someone in your area will contact you. Uh, that's it from us and we will see you next week. Same time, same place. Bye bye. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity.